Once again, I would invite you to open your Bibles to the fifth chapter of the book of Ephesians. We'll be looking this Lord's Day. I know in your bulletins it says all the way through verse 21, but we're going to look at verses 11 through 17. So I would invite you to read along with me. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. As I sat this morning in front of my computer in the early hours of the morning, and I'm reading and studying the passage that we're going to be looking at, I noticed I could hear the sound of an ambulance, and it seems, at least in my perception, to go from one end of the park or the, the community that we live in to another. And the streets wind along, so I listened for what seemed like a very long time, the sound of this ambulance, at about 6, 6.15 in the morning. And I listened as it waited, made its way to its destination where there obviously would have been somebody in distress. You don't call the ambulance to, to come and uh, hang out for a while and have pizza together. You call an ambulance when there's a dire need for an ambulance. We get out of the way because we know this, the situation's urgent. There's been an accident or there's perhaps someone has suffered a heart attack or something dire. It brings a not only a seriousness of the event but also of the brevity and, and the finality of of life, we know that ambulance may someday come for me. Amen? And it's not wrong to stop every once in a while and take stock of the Christian life and ask the question, when will my day come when I will blink and then suddenly be before God? Literally be in front of Almighty God well, we are in the middle of just such a passage this Lord's Day. It is, a, it is a passage that, in a sense, sounds that ambulance siren alarm to the church, to the Christian. It gives us the warning of God, the siren, if you will, that each of our lives will soon, very soon be over, and we will be in His presence where we will have to give an account a thought, frankly, more sobering than the thought of having the ambulance visit my home. Well, it is with this note of seriousness and sobriety that I believe Paul has entered into the discussion of the Christian and sin, of walking in a manner 
that has been commanded by God of His children, walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Well, we've talked about that calling before. We've been called into the kingdom of God. We've been, we've been called to be kings and priests before Him, to walk in holiness, to lift up our heads, for we are Christians. We're Christian. Just the sound of that word should lift up your head, should it not? Paul speaks of walking in the light and of imitating God, and in chapters 4-6 through six we, we read the imperatives that are all based upon the indicatives of chapters 1-3, through three. that is all that we are because of all that God has done. That's the foundation, those three chapters, so that every time we read an imperative, our mind should automatically go, that's right. I'm going to do this because He's done that. And, and, he's, and He's done it in me. That's, that should be the foundational thought of the Christian. Not, not because He thinks He's going to be good or impress God, but because Christ is at work in you. And that should be the thought of every believer. It should be the foundation of why we obey the the imperatives of Scripture. Well, after He has given the imperative to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called, and to be imitators of God and not to be partakers with the sons of disobedience. Let me translate that for you. Not to walk like a blatant sinner. Not to live like them. To be different. To be other. And not in a prideful way, by the way. We're, we're not to walk in the, in the modern day fundamentalist mindset where somehow we're holier than thou, as if that were even possible. But no, we are to walk and to be imitators of God and not to walk in sin, and not to be like the world because God has commanded it. And isn't that a good enough reason? Is, is it not a good enough reason to walk in obedience to God because He told us to? When you were a kid, did your father ever tell you to do something and you turned and asked why? And then he gave that fatherly response that all fathers are guilty of, because I said so. Amen? Amen. Why is that not good enough? The father in your home, when you were a kid, carried a certain level of authority, did he not? He did in my home. And if he told you to do something, what, what was the response if, if you were in a sane moment? Yes, sir. And, and you knew even as a kid that when you gave the response, it was because it was the right thing to do, even if you didn't like it. And you had better still do it. How much more our Heavenly Father? How much more does not God who has birthed us into Christ, literally, we've been given a new heart. He's taken the heart of stone, given us a heart of flesh, and made us into His image, the image of Christ. We are in Him. We ought to walk like Him. How much more than God does not, does not God have that right to issue a command? And the Christian says, yes, I hear and obey. We're to be imitators of God and not to be partakers with the sons of disobedience. Instead, we are to walk as children of light, not like children of light. There's a distinction there. 
Not like children of light, as children of light. We're not to imitate children of light, we're to begin to walk as what we are. Learning what is pleasing to the Lord. Well, Paul then continues in verse 11 with the admonition not to participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. There, there is a manner in which I might quibble a little bit with Paul's wording in a, with my tongue poking the side of my cheek out. The, those, those unfruitful deeds of darkness in one sense are definitely unfruitful, but in another sense they do bear fruit, don't they? They bear fruit unto what? Death. The fruit of your sin are the wages you earn, and the wages of sin is... Yeah. It became fashionable at some point over the last 30, 40 years as, as a preacher, for most preachers, to, to avoid the, the preaching of, uh, of or against sin. When you, when you talk about God's anger and wrath against sin and, and, and tell the average Christian, you ought not do that. that that's an uncomfortable message to hear. Preaching against sin kind of went out of fashion, didn't it? Preaching on, on love and, and the grace and mercy of God and His, His tender-heartedness and, and God's a bud just like us came into fashion. Frankly, beloved, I don't know about you, but I need to hear the Word of God as it puts its finger in my chest and warns me not to walk and to bear unfruitful deeds of darkness. I need that. There's, even as a Christian, there is this tendency when sin approaches me, there's, a, there's still the old man that wants to lock arms with it at times. And so I need to hear what Paul has to say. Well, as we read verses 7 through 10, again, I'm going to read them in a moment. Notice that he, he never really leaves this foundation that we mentioned, the, the foundation of who we are in Christ, that we are light in the Lord, that we are a new creation, having been adopted into His family, and that we are His children now, and He is our Father, and so we are to follow, to love, and to obey Him. Paul never leaves that. In verse 7 of this chapter, Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Pretty straightforward. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Well, what else is the fruit of the light? Verse 10, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Now I read that sentence. And hopefully you think as I do, wait a minute, that's trying to learn what pleases God, not what pleases me. See, it takes the focus off of yourself and puts it where it belongs, onto Christ, doesn't it? What pleases Him? James Montgomery Boyce, the, the, that great preacher of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, writes this about Paul's statement. He says, The most important thing about this statement is that Paul does not merely say merely that before their conversion Christians were in darkness and now since their conversion they are in the light. That, that's true. We agree with that, right? You're not in darkness anymore. If you've been converted, if you've been given a new heart, you are in the light. 
You're in the light. You're not walking in darkness anymore. We, we, we get that Paul's saying that. Before they were darkness, now they are light, is what Paul says. There, there's a difference here. He's not, not saying that you are no longer walking in darkness, that you're walking in light. That's understood. But what he's saying is that you are light. You say, well, Pastor, that's pretty evident. Uh, that's no big. Well, hang on. We'll see why that makes such a huge, monumental, foundational difference to our understanding of what Paul's getting at in these verses. You are light. He says, before they were, they were not only in darkness, darkness was in them. Every single one of us here, you were in darkness, and darkness was in you. And now they not only are in light, they are light, and light is in them, and therefore must shine out as lights to a benighted society. What does the world see when it looks at you? What does it hear from you when you speak? When the world observes your life, what stands out in it? What Does it get the world's attention for looking like it? Sounding like it? Or being different? You see, if it is only a question of seeking the light or living in the light, then Christianity is no different from any other religion or philosophy, is it? Buddhism promises that you can come to the light. And there is no more hope from it than from any other religion. But if becoming a Christian involves a change from darkness to light, then the presence of Christians in the world is itself hope, as together we stand against the darkness. You see, that is what is true of you. You are not just in the light. Paul says you are light. And that should make all the difference in the world. What we have been made and who we are in Christ cannot be overstated because it is the foundation of everything. Well, but work of the Holy Spirit making us a new creation, we call this regeneration, right? When, when a man hears the gospel and, and the Holy Spirit comes and he takes the heart of stone, he puts in your, in your chest a heart of flesh. It's now a living heart, a breathing soul to the things of God. You're no longer dead to Christ. The unregenerate man, the man who does not know Christ, the man who has not believed, doesn't just need a remodel or a makeover or to clean up his life. He doesn't just need to be good. I cannot tell you how many times in my life I have sat to preach the gospel to someone and the reply that always comes is, I am a good person. And I think I've shocked not a few people by looking at them and saying, man, I'm so pleased for you because I'm not. And, and, and if they know you're a pastor, the look that comes is the eyes suddenly widen and they stare back at you as if... And, and, and there's dead silence. They don't know what to say about that. And well, let me explain to you that I'm not a good person, but I serve a good God and I'm in a good Christ. And because I'm in a good Christ and He's taken my sin, He counts me as good. 
And you know what's better than that? Better than Him simply counting me as good, beloved? He treats me as good. You want to talk about a mind blower? God treating me as good? Treating Bill as good? What? I'm sorry, if y'all don't find that amazing, that God not only looks at you as good, but treats you as good. And that's the effect of the gospel. That's the effect of regeneration. That's the effect of being light in Christ. So does it make all the difference in the world? (laughs) Yeah, it does, doesn't it? See, you know when you hear all that and you read all that, that should listen, Christian. That should create a joy welling up in your heart for the salvation of God. That should drive you to His Word and a response that says, "What do you want, Lord? It's yours. Done. There. How fast can I get to what you want from me? My sins are gone. The the moment that ambulance has picked me up and they and they look at my wife and say, "Sorry," while well, she's Looking down at me, I'm looking in the face of Christ and He's saying, well done, good and faithful servant. I see, I know something about all of your minds right now as I just said that. You're thinking to yourself, odds are pretty small I'm going to hear that phrase when I see Jesus. Come on now, most of you thought that, didn't you? But you see, if you're light, if you've been brought into Christ and God looks at His Son and smiles and He looks at you and smiles because there's no sin. It's gone in Him. There's no darkness. It's gone in Christ. The effect of that regeneration, the effect of having made you light means that when you stand before God on the day of your death, on the moment, in that twinkling of an eye that Paul talks about, You will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, not because of you, but because of Him. See, we don't think like that, do we? We we don't think like that, and I know this, because I think the same rotten thoughts at times, and I have to come to the Word of God, and I I have to lean upon Christ to pull my mind away from thinking that Christ, who saves perfectly, can do any less. We as Reformed folks, we're, we're fond of, of the doctrines of grace. And, and we love them, and rightly so. Amen? We, lo- we come to church, and we, we come and we rejoice over a God who didn't just throw salvation out there and treat it like a southern home, you know, dinner's ready, come before I throw it to the hogs. No, our God came and He saved. And, and, and there's rest in that, and there's rejoicing in that, but do we count on Him for the sanctifying grace that comes with it? Say, hmm, well, that's a different matter. We, we get God's able to accomplish the first part. We're just not quite so sure about the rest of it, are we? Will you stand before God with any less than the perfect righteousness and obedience of Christ imputed to you? 
Mm. Verse 9, For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. You see, the impact of that statement is monumental, isn't it? Is the Holy Spirit in you? If you belong to Christ, He is. Is He faithful? God is faithful, even when we're not. Will He bear fruit unto righteousness in your life? Can He get that done just as surely as He got your salvation done? You see, it is by nature the desire of the Christian to please God, isn't it? We might even say that's a regenerate, natural desire. Say, well, what do you mean by that? Very simple. When you were unregenerate, and and maybe you've been a believer long enough now, you go, man, you know, I have a hard time remembering the unregenerate life. Well, look around. You can see a lot of it. When you regenerate, did sin come normally and naturally by nature to you? The answer is yes. It's what we were, right? It's why the... It's why the phrase sinners appears so often. We were sinners because we sinned. But if this statement is true, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, if Christ is the light in us, then He will, through the Holy Spirit, bear that fruit in you by your new regenerate nature. Starting to get a taste of the importance of what is being said here. It's everything. And so it is by nature the desire of the Christian to please God. If you don't have that desire, then go back to the Gospel. And once, you, and when you've gone back to the Gospel, then go back to the Gospel. Again, and again. It is not only the desire of the nature, the natural desire of the Christian to please God, to live according to His Word, and to press on toward the goal of being like Christ. It is the fruit of the light of Christ that is produced by God in the light of the Christian. And that is the impact of this centerpiece statement. That's it. It becomes, therefore, a life that is lived pleasing to God. In Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, Paul writes this. This is instructive to us. So I want to read this carefully and, and, and really listen to what Paul is saying here. Some time ago I preached a sermon while you're turning there where I talked about the, the necessity of believing that the Word of God is inerrant and and not only inerrant, but infallible. Right? And, and not only inerrant and infallible, but sufficient for all matters of, of faith and practice. And I said, I said, those three are perfectly true, but they are in themselves insufficient because they lack one more quality. I, be, I do believe the Word of God is inerrant, and infallible and sufficient, but I believe also in the severity of the Word of God. That God means every word that He has spoken to us in the Scriptures with an eternal severity. 
Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, those are enabling mercies, by the way, dear Christian, to present your bodies a living and holy, what? Sacrifice. Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That's the reasonable service, the reasonable worship, life worship of the Christian. That's the normal Christian life. Again, back in, if you turn back six chapters to chapter six of Romans, we read in our call to worship up through verse 11. I want to read verses 11 through 14. I stop there on purpose. He says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace." The grace of God has brought you into Christ. It's given you a new nature and has delivered you from the bondage of sin. All that is by way of introduction. and So I first want to give you the first of several points, and that is the practice of discipline in the church. The practice of discipline in the church. When we hear the word discipline, it has a negative connotation often, doesn't it? did to me in my home when I was a kid. I didn't enjoy discipline much. But the church needs discipline. It needs, uh, of course, church discipline. We know about that. But it needs disciplined Christians, doesn't it? It needs you and I to be disciplined on our walk before God. Disciplined in our obedience to Christ. Disciplined in our love for one another. Disciplined in the pursuit of holiness. The church needs discipline. And so we see in verse 11 of our text, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. Paul says what they do, what the unregenerate do in their sin, in the darkness is so bad, it's, just, it's, it's disgraceful even to utter it. Can't even talk about it. And so not only are we not to be a part of these kinds of sins that bring shame on the name of Christ and destruction to His church, but we are to deal with them. I hear that phrase, and and I'm again reminded of being a a child in my home and hearing my mother say, "When, when your father gets home, he'll deal with you. The Christian is to treat sin that way. We deal with it. We get rid of it. We put it to death. And we deal with it in, with one another. We we'll say, well, how do we deal with it with one another? That sounds rather ominous. Well, we deal with it in two ways. 
First, we do this by prayer for one another and for the church, that we would walk in holiness. See, we, we, we pray for all kinds of illnesses and physical infirmities. That's customary in the church among Christians, right? The quickest way to get on the prayer chain is to come down with gout or some infirmity. Pray for sister so-and-so. She has X physical problem. And, and don't misunderstand me. That's right and good and proper. We should be doing that. That's love and care for the brethren. Amen. But we ought to be more fervent and consistent in our prayers for holiness for ourselves and for each other than we are the physical infirmities. The question is, are we? Do you have a list of every person who attends this church who's here on the Lord's Day, member or not? And do you pray for them? Do you pray that God would keep them from the evil one, the Paneros? Do you pray that God would root out sin in their life and grant them holiness and a greater love for Christ and a reverence for His Word? Do you pray these things for one another consistently? No, you don't have to pray for everybody every day when you sit down to pray, but do you work your way through the people in this church? And we're small, so it shouldn't take us very long. If we were a 2,000-member church, you might say, Well, Pastor, I'm 35 years old. I'd like to die before I'm 135. (laughs) Do, Do we pray for holiness? Because the need for holiness in the Christian life, beloved, far outweighs the need for healing of the body. We will one day put this body in the grave. And then we will see God. And and the Scriptures tell us without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That's first. Second, we do this when we hear or see a believer in some kind of sinful speech or behavior. Always mindful of our own sins our own shortcomings? Are we willing to come to a brother or a sister in a spirit of humility with gentleness and grace and speak to them about what we have seen or heard? Again, taking great care that we don't begin to think to ourselves, I, I, I would never do that. I would, I would never be guilty of that sin. Yes, you would. Put you in the right place under the right circumstances and yes, you would. It's, it's a form of arrogance and pride for a Christian to think, I could never commit that sin. Well, suppose we said, okay, maybe not that sin. But, but, but the moment we think that, the devil says, smiles and says, don't worry, I got you covered. I may not get you on that one, I'll just get you on that one. Right? Not to come to a brother or sister who has sinned with grief in our hearts and with prayer and with humility. The same kinds of imperative is is stated in 1 Timothy chapter 5 with regard to an elder who is sinning. That Paul says we're not to cover it up, but you are to, same word, expose it if he does not repent, but persists or continues in it. Verse 19 of 1 Timothy 5. Listen to how he words this. Do not receive an accusation against an elder. Accept. Here's the exception. You ready? On the basis of two or three gossipers. Oh no, I'm sorry. It says witnesses. 
do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Now, you need to stop there for a moment and make an unqualified qualification. Say, what in the world is an unqualified qualification? Simply this. This is not a special treatment of an elder. This is true for anybody in the church. If you're going to say something about a fellow Christian with regard to a hint, an accusation, an intimation of any kind of sin, it ought not leave your mouth except that you have gone to them with first and then second brought along what? Two or three witnesses. If you saw it and you go to them and they don't repent, then you take two or three witnesses and so on and so forth. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest will also be fearful of sinning. In other words, what Paul is saying is an elder is no better than anybody else when it comes to sin. Matthew 18 applies to everybody. But you're not to cover it over, you're not to hide it, you're to expose it. So question, think for a moment. If what Paul is talking about here is not an open rebuke in front of the church of an elder who is unrepentant and in sin, then... What is it that brings the fear of sinning to the rest of the church? I have only in my many years of being in and out of churches, only ever seen church discipline exercised maybe three times. Boy, I have been so privileged to be in the church, church after church after church, and seen such an utter lack of sin among Christians. Some of of you are smiling. You know what I'm talking about, right? The church's inadequacy and unwillingness to deal with sin is the cause of a lack of church discipline most often. By the way, Matthew 18 does not teach us that we are to treat a brother as if he is an enemy. Rather, its intention is to bring about his repentance and restoration. You see, church discipline, exposing sin, bringing it out into the open, as it were, brings a kind of clarity to the church and a fear of God that the church so desperately needs. See, the problem for the church today is not that the unbeliever does not fear God, it's just the church has no fear of God. This brings us to verse 13. Which says again, but all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Now your first impression when you read that is, what in the world is Paul talking about? At the risk of a pun, let me see if I can shed some light on this passage. This is simply the language that is used often in scripture of the distinction between darkness and light. It is the language of sleeping and of being awake, uh, the language of death and of life in Christ, the contrasts between the two that show up all over the pages of Scripture, meant to get the Christian's attention. The true light of the world, being Christ, has come into the world and dispelled the darkness, and if you are Christ, if you belong to Him, then you are not only in the light, you are light said that earlier you are no longer in darkness the metaphor for death and sin 
you were dead in trespasses and sins and you walked in darkness. Notice the past tense of those things. You were therefore part of the darkness. But now by means of regeneration and faith in Christ you have come into the light and you are light and you have passed out of judgment, out of darkness and into the light. And you are visibly in the light. Because everything that is light is what? Visible. There is a passage that I... was one of the first passages that I learned as a brand new Christian. Maybe you know it. It shows up in football games. And it's a passage we dearly love. It's John 3.16, which, by the way, is one of the most misunderstood passages in the New Testament. But... If you would turn in your Bibles to John 3, let's read it together. And as we read it, I'm going to put a little twist to it and read it, change a couple of the words to be more reflective of what they would sound like where they read more word for word out of the Greek language. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that the ones believing in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. The one believing in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. By the way, do you hear the distinction when you take the Old English whosoever? out of it. John John 3.16 is not saying how someone came to believe. It's simply giving you the that of their belief. Amen? The one believing. The believing ones. This is the judgment, verse 19, that the light has come into the world. There's that theme of light again that God uses so often to speak of Christ and of those who are in Him. And men, men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were what? Kind of bad. Well, it says their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. There's that word again. Verse 21, But he who practices the truth comes to the light. Let me read that again. He who practices the truth comes to the light. That's just what he does. Because he can't help himself. Because by nature he's in the light. He's already there. He's come to the light. He comes to the light. It's not a once and for all thing. It's a continual coming. A continual believing. See, that is the real meaning of John 3.16. The one believing. The one coming. Jesus says. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been what? wrought in God. And once again, we're brought back full circle. Why do we walk in the light? Why are we in the light? Because of what God has done. 
And that's the distinction between the sons of light and the sons of darkness. The sons of darkness will not come to the light. They want nothing to do with the light. They hate. They hate. They don't just dislike the light. They hate the light. How do we know? That's what it says. They want nothing to do with the light because the light of God exposes their deeds and shows them for what they are and for who they are. That's how we know them. And so the question that inevitably comes when you you explain this flow, this meaning of John 3.16 in its context is this. Are Are you ready? Can a person... Can a saved person, a, a Christian who is truly regenerate, get caught up in a sin and remain in it and still go to heaven, still be saved on the day of judgment? Can, can you enter into unqualified, unrepentant sin and live in it as a regenerate Christian? See, we don't run from a question like that, do we? Because we can't. We, we've all known people who have said, I, I'm a Christian, and you know in their life there's gross sin, and they excuse it or explain it away. You know, but I'm, I walked forward when I was a teenager, and I know God loves me just the way I am. Well, in a way... It is not a, this is not only asking the wrong question, but this statement has the wrong presupposition behind it. The two things that are wrong with the question are these. First, it assumes that regeneration has taken place in the one who calls himself a Christian. And second, the second thing is that God will allow a Christian in whom he has... Pl- whom he has placed in his kingdom, whom he has placed in the light, who is who in whom he has placed the light, who has made a part of the light and given the Holy Spirit to, he will allow them to to live in sin with no repentance as a lifestyle. That's the assumption in the question. Well, the way that we must answer the assumption is to say what Scripture says. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the what? Of the day. How do you know it's daytime? You say, well, Pastor, if i got to explain to you that there's sunshine out here right now, we need to talk. Right? Since we are of the day, let us be sober, having having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, verse 9 follows everything that has been said in verses 4 through 8. You are not in darkness and you are not darkness. To walk in sin is to walk in the darkness. See, I wonder at the person who 
who will argue so vehemently for the professing Christian who lives in sin and darkness that they must be saved, even at the expense of the straightforward passages of Scripture that say otherwise. Are they more concerned with trying to convince themselves and the sinning person that they are still in the kingdom than they are with the holiness of God and the reputation of Christ? Another passage that speaks to this as we draw to a close. 1 John 1, 5, 7. 1 John 1, 5 through 7 says, This is the message we have heard from Him. The Him is Christ. This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you. Paul says, we're, John says, we're passing this on, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, if we say we believe in Him, if we say we belong to Him, if we say we're in the light, the light's in us, that we, we trust in Him, we're regenerate. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, listen to this next part. If this is true, if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Now, that's not a conditional statement in the sense that I can make it a a condition. I can make it a condition. If I just start walking in the light, well then, merely by walking in the light, then His blood is going to cleanse me from all sin. No, that's not the kind of conditional statement I'm talking about. The kind of conditional statement might even be said to be a contingent statement. How do we know that the blood of Jesus, His Son, is cleansing? It's a, by the way, it's an ongoing tense here. Cleansing us from all sin? We're walking in the light. There's an evidence of what God is doing. See, the evidence or the proof that we are in the light and that the blood of His Son has cleansed us from all sin is that we do not walk in darkness. We walk in Him, in the light. 